0: Soho New York and I'm sitting and having coffee with Chris van Noy. Uh, Chris where we've, we've got a common friend uh, James of course and uh, Chris used to be um, used to run strategy at Akamai uh, which is of course the, the world's uh, largest CDN network and we're mm-hmm. gonna talk a little bit about what that is and why it's important. Uh, he currently consults to a lot of different media and technology companies and hedge funds about all the stuff around media that is actually incredibly important, but we often don't think about <laughs> Chris, it's, a, it's good to see you again.
1: It's great to be here.
0: But let's talk a little bit about some of the stuff we are talking about before because one of the things I found really intriguing was that um, the Internet that we think we use today is, is a bit of a mental construct. It, it doesn't actually exist in the way that we imagine it, it does.
1: Yeah, that's right. The, uh, the Internet, as it, was, as it was conceived, was for emergency communication. By the by, the military. If, if a bomb goes off, want we'll to be able to um, guarantee that communication gets through. And so, it really wasn't meant for the things that we're that we're using it for today. So you're saying
0: it wasn't designed for Orange Is the New Black.
1: <laughs> it was not. It was not. Game of Thrones would crash the the, <laughs> a, the actual internet as it was built. Uh, in fact, in 1998, a uh, Victoria's Secret video was released. And when, when it was out there, it actually crashed the internet, the old internet, in the southeastern United States. So Kim Kardashian wasn't the first person to break the Was internet. not, was not. It's probably you know, Cindy Crawford. Cindy Crawford is the, <laughs> is the destructor of the original internet. Right. He's can use that. Um, and so Tim Berners-Lee, the architect for the, not necessarily the, the internet, but the World Wide Web, went to a professor at MIT named Tom Layton said we have a problem because he really foresaw at least somewhat what we we're going to use the internet for uh, both for you know uh, communications media commerce etc maybe he didn't see all the cell phones but he saw it proliferating across at least desktops <laughs> and this this Victoria's Secret video is a great example of how the internet is just not, uh, not going gonna to be good enough for what we're going to use it for and so as an academic exercise, not as a commercial one, which is a important distinction, they created a system of being able to, to be able to put thousands of servers around the world to be able to store content closer to the audience, and technologies to be able to move the content or data rather much more fluidly in between those servers. So when you're watching a video from Hulu here in New York City. You're not That video isn't being streamed or moved from Los Angeles where Hulu is based. It's probably from one of Akamai's servers right here in in New York City, probably in Manhattan somewhere just coming a very short distance down to where you are. So, 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 so
0: these are content delivery networks, right?
1: These are content delivery networks and they are... And they've been around for a long time. They've been around since about, uh, about 2000 and they've really dominated and they really are what You actually see how you view the internet. Everything you see probably comes off of one of these CDNs or content delivery networks. Um, Very even if you even if you started your own blog, started Mike's blog on WordPress, WordPress itself uses a CDN. Very few things are on the traditional internet.
0: So would you say the vast majority of the stuff we look at, whether it's television or Facebook or Twitter is actually being uh, delivered to us from a, from a geographically proximate server.
1: Yes and, let, and it's either by a geographically proximate server or if it's a real-time thing like a stock quote or a tweet or something like that there are these technologies that sit on top of the internet that move that loop that move it much faster between servers to get to us the traditional internet is just is just too slow for how fast we adopted it it's amazing
0: so what's kind of intriguing about this is like a, it's a bit like amazon's fulfillment centers like i was reading that amazon had come up with an algorithm that can actually predict what you want before you know you want it <laughs> and they'll actually
1: <laughs>
0: um are yeah um, it actually will predict uh the good that you want and make sure it's in the fulfillment center that's closest to you before you hit buy now so it it sort of magically shows that it's in stock but it actually wasn't in stock before the algorithm determined you might want it so my question is do these cdns work the same way do they sort of know that you like watching victoria's secret videos and they actually co-locate these things yes at least at least at an aggregate level yes yes they do i mean i don't
1: think it's a huge stretch to know that straight males love to watch victoria's secret but they, they are algorithms because there is limited storage space right. at the edge. And that storage space is actually very expensive or relatively expensive to store stuff. And so those algorithms across, I think those types of algorithms that predict what we want and get to know us are not only proliferate in the deeper levels of CDNs, but they move their ways, but they're, move, but they're very valuable in, for instance, Netflix, as you just saw. Netflix's entire purpose isn't to have all the content in the world, is to have the content that we want to watch that's going to attract us within the first three seconds. And they would have to know what we want to watch before we watch it. And as you noted, it goes up one level up to the physical world, which is Amazon, things we want to buy when we want to buy it. And it optimizes physical space. So th-
0: these algorithms are, in a sense, the the hidden value at the heart of the Internet because they must have some of the most accurate prediction of people's uh, desires of
1: anything because no matter how good we get at storage and um, transportation there's always going to be a limit to the uh, to the capacity for the storage and the transportation and being able to predict what's at the edge what doesn't get the edge what has to be transported what isn't is always going to be is always gonna be something valuable and from a not from a, a cost perspective but from a business perspective Amazon when you open up Amazon and you see the either the web page on your desktop or on your phone that's limited real estate limited real estate for your attention and they want to grab your attention and present the things that you want to look at or you may want to buy right away if it's not there then a they lose money right away and b you may not come back because it didn't present you something compelling
0: so how how do the mechanics behind that infrastructure work does, does Netflix presumably tell Akamai or another CDN that these are the, the shows that we predict that this ge- geography going to look at, put them into your service now, or, or is there something different going on?
1: Well, for um, Amazon doesn't do that. because I mean, I don't, Amazon not necessarily. Well, maybe the Amazon video. I mean Netflix. Oh, yes. For, for Netflix, uh, absolutely. They have an algorithm that, um, tell, that tells the CDNs what is the major pieces of content that they want stored at the edge. So, and this is a great example because movie files are very big, and you want to be, and you don't want them moving across. You want them stored at, stored at the edge of the servers, uh, the ones that are highest in demand. And so, minute by minute, or fairly frequently they swap those out because the popularity of those things of those uh, videos gets swapped out. Right. And so they want to have the optimal amount of videos at the edge and the fewest needs for moving content across the system to you because they're big files, it's very expensive and it's well it's not slow, it's slower than the instantaneous. So it's a bit at
0: like the a BitTorrent, isn't it? Because I mean if you if you're trying to watch a popular show like Daredevil, it's going to yeah. load up much faster than some obscure back episode of Night Rider.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And they also, for the for the end user, they want that as um, as instantaneous as possible. In fact, interestingly enough, <clears throat> excuse me, is more important for commerce companies than for content companies like Netflix. Because for a content, for for commerce companies, let's say Nordstrom, etc., it's more important to it's if it takes longer to load up. There's a higher percentage chance that you're going to leave, and that's real money. With with the Netflix, you have a subscription. They they have you for a month, and that you they have your ten dollars. So for for commerce companies, they only get your money once you buy something. If the web page or whatever takes longer to load up then there's a higher percentage chance, for each second, a higher percentage chance that you're going to leave, and then you're not going to buy something. So they really want things at the edge, or they want things to be dynamically loaded very quickly across the internet.
0: So this is why they started talk now not just about CDNs, but sort of application, ADN, sort of application delivery networks, right? Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, exactly. Right. Which is a subset of CDNs, like Instart Logic, et cetera, being able to load applications or being able to um, uh, being able to move content very quickly that needs to be dynamically loaded, like stock quotes, like tweets, like uh, um, ever-changing, uh, ever-changing inventory, like um, airline flights or those types, or, or or hotel rooms where, t- where prices change. Those things need to load very quickly. If they don't load quickly, you may leave and you're not going to get that hotel room from Expedia, or orbits, etc and they lose that money.
0: It seems like, I mean, there's, it's, there's sort of a concentration of big players in this space. Uh, and it seems to be the kind of business that rewards scale. But strangely enough, um, from what I've been reading, a number of these bigger players are actually starting to build their
1: own CDNs now. That's right.
0: So, so what's driving that? And, and I guess what advantages do you get from running your
1: own? Well, I mean, they always the uh, the build versus, build versus buy or rent, or build versus buy or partner. That if that uh, that you that you go through when you have a vendor. Once you get to a point where, you the amount of use of a vendor is is so much that it's cheaper for you to build it. Right. That that makes sense for you to go out and build it. And obviously the big six, the the Apple, the Netflix, the Google, the Facebook, the the Microsoft, and the uh, the Twitters of the world, they've gotten to a point where it's it's better for them or it makes more financial sense for them to go out and build it. In addition to that, they can um, customize it directly for their needs. Large CDNs, Akamai, etc., they need to, when they need to build something or build some sort of customization, it needs to be broadly available for them to make money off of it. In addition, a lot of these companies want to have proprietary technologies just for their uh, just for their content or just for the just for their services that they want to patent and be able to use to give them another competitive advantage. Right. And so those three things, where it's buy versus build cost, whether it's the speed of customization, because they want to be able to customize very quickly for their needs. And the um, exclusivity of that customization are really the three criteria for those companies that are going to build their own CDNs.
0: Now that we're sort of getting this more x-ray view of the pipes that run the world, I guess you start to see some of the other vested interests as well. And, and I guess this brings up this whole issue of net neutrality because right. it sort of becomes a question of who pays for what. I mean, there's, there's, you know, should the consumer pay for the pipe owner or mm. should the content owner be paying the pipe owner Rather than the CDN owner for the delivery of their content.
1: Well, actually, right now the uh, ISPs, the pipe owners, want both. Yeah. They, they, they want the and the want u- their
0: cake and to eat. They
1: it. want the cake and the Eater. and they want the user to be able to pay because we all pay for internet access. Yeah. And they want the content owners or the data provider or the people that the data services to be able to pay them too for the the privilege of having access, when really it's the user pulling down, pulling down the the content. Um, and frankly, without Netflix, sorry, without Netflix and without Hulu, people would not be paying extra to be able to have the higher bit rates from the ISPs and to be able to pay that higher money. So that's actually in their interest to actually have Netflix and Hulu exist, so that you and I pay for hundred megabits down instead of just the five we really need for Facebook, etc. So, what what
0: what actually is the debate around net neutrality? What does it actually mean, and, and so beta,
1: why should we care? So, the debate around net neutrality is really around short-term gain for the ISPs. They want to be able to charge the con- the content owners, content owners, to be able to deliver content to us while while the users actually also pay for the ISPs as well. Right. And that is relatively short-term thinking because that's not how networks work, or that's not the that's that's how to really restrict the benefit of networks. So think for a minute of the networks that we use every day, the electric grid, the telephone networks, and kind of counterintuitively, the airline routes that we all that we all use. If the airline, if the um, if everybody had to pay to have access to actually call somebody else. That through many different networks across the um, the reliability of the telephone network would be degraded a lot, and so therefore fewer people would actually use the telephone network. If I wanted to call some, if I had, calling somebody from New York to L.A. or Seattle, was much more of a risky proposition, or was. But well, the mobile
0: networks used to be like that in the United States.
1: It used to be like that, but it wasn't. To, it wasn't too bad to the user, and they actually consolidated. Into, and it actually become a much smoother process. So calling somebody is a guarantee process. If I called you, in even in Singapore, which I would have to go through many different networks, but all of those are aligned, I'm guaranteed to reach you if you're there. Obviously, if I'm actually um, plugging, plugging in my lamp, and all of the electricity in my local area from my provider has is actually peaking. Let's say it's nine in the morning or noon. If there wasn't a way to be able to get excess electricity from other from other networks smoothly and easily and it wasn't guaranteed that I'd be able to plug in my lamp We wouldn't depend on electricity and the electrical grid would be far less useful. But
0: electricity is an interesting example because companies do pay extra for sort of guaranteed uninterrupted special power right like there's right. three-phase power.
1: Right it is three-phase power but yeah. the uh, the Cost to the user and the electrical networks, the electrical network itself, is actually has a guaranteed flow of electricity that will that will actually get to everybody, despite those those tr- those trades. In addition, the other piece of that is that the electrical grid is the providers are pretty fairly stayed. They are what they're going to be for the uh, next five years, with the exception of solar, and that's. Kind of excess free electricity, right. whereas content and data, you have always innovative places where you're going to get that information and where the, that data is going to come from. From Mike's blog up to Google, like where that content is going to come from. And if you're charging or if you put an extra layer of uh, restriction or, or cost onto Mike's blog, he may not start up and you may not get that kind of innovation right. to be able to get to the next user. And that's really also another way that constricts the network. But but in a way,
0: I mean CDNs are are already doing this because yes, Mike's blog, which is probably the least read blog in the world <laughs> <laughs> not
1: not I, I can I can sign up and
0: I can be happy that no one reads it. But um, in a sense if people do start reading it and then they can't get to it because of latency issues. Right. If I don't pay a CDN a fortune to co-locate it you know, near Indonesia or wherever my sort of vast new Asian readership is growing, then in a way I've also been restricted that audience.
1: Uh, in a way, but the, the CDNs are um, already integrated into the services that you would use your blog for anyway. Right. So, and we are talking about a charge... On top of that charge, anyway, ah. so that's yet another charge to it's be like able to a, re- like
0: another one, another person trying to commercialize the toll road.
1: Right, exactly, and that's only for the short-term game for the for the ISPs, and that will restrict the amount of data that will be going right. over there. And so, therefore, um, the larger companies and the smaller companies will be optimizing for minimizing or at least optimizing the amount of data that goes through instead of focusing their innovation on making their services better. The more, the, the less constriction around the network, the more people that will play and the more use that will have around that from the data providers and the users on the other side of the network. The larger the utility of the network, the more it's going to be used and the more everybody benefits, including the ISPs, not in the far term, but even just in the midterm.
0: You know, another thing we were talking about before was was sort of how the I guess the uh, uh, the non-intuitive uh, aspects of the new the new economics of attention and 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 one of the things that I I think that a lot of media and content owners are playing with at the moment is the impact of streaming on the traditional media business. Right. Uh, I think you called it a death spiral.
1: <laughs> Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. I mean, right now, at least in America, the. Um, Previously, in the 80s and 90s, we really only had three or four things that were really competing for our attention. Whip. Cheers. <laughs> <Gosh>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So when we came home from work because we only had, we didn't have these things available to us outside of our home. It was really television, movies, home entertainment like DVDs and VHS, and prints like newspapers and magazines. Those are the things that are really competing. Telephone, I guess you could you could argue also had that competition for our attention but now with the mobile te- telephones that are hooked up to high-speed Internet there are a vast multitude of things that are competing for our attention from social networks to other content providers to communications with other people texting video etc and the multitude of other things that we're haven't even thought of to be able to pull our attention away from the traditional four things that we just talked about, which is television, movies, home entertainment, print. Um, and so therefore, pe- fewer people are watching or, or leveraging cable, or actually paying, or, or are using cable, it's like fewer hours per week. And so, but at the same time, the cost of cable for us is going up. And so while fewer people are watching it, fewer people are watching the television stations as well, they're getting fewer advertisers and television networks actually charge cable companies to be on their cable networks. Right. So they are increasing the charge to the cable networks, which then pass along that extra cost to us, and so our cable bills keep going up, and that push us, pushes us Away, more people leave so, cable, so going down. So you've
0: got a you've got a service that people find less value in. That's actually becoming right. more expensive. That's coming, yes, exactly.
1: <laughs> so it's less utility while becoming more expensive, and it's getting people are leaving, and therefore it's becoming more expensive than people are leaving. On the other side of that, the cable companies are also the same people that are providing the internet access, and so they're also investing in it, but they keep all of that revenue from the from providing internet access. And therefore, but um, and paradoxically, they want Netflix and Hulu because that is how uh, the regular users increase their bit rates or their plans within the ISPs, hmm. which Netflix and Hulu, as you know, compete directly against.
0: So, so in a way, the net, the net neutrality debate is, is is the kind of the ISPs trying to shift their cable. Um, distribution model across to uh, this new bitrite
1: distribution model right because unlike the cable side or the television side they don't have to share their revenue with the broadcast channels and the cable channels they keep all of it on the on the internet side yeah. Yeah. and they want to be able to double dip they want to charge you and me for a for, the, for internet access and they want to charge the content or the or the or the data video providers for having access to the network. At the same time, they need those video providers to ha- for, for us to be able to want to have. When you look access.
0: at these video providers, I mean, in many ways, it feels like we're in the golden age of television. Uh, I mean, there's, you know people said Lost would be the last really expensive TV show ever made, but it turns out that, that that was by no means true, that we're, we're spending more per episode than people used to spend on a whole season.
1: Not only that, there are more platforms that want content. Yeah. yeah. So not only Netflix and Hulu and HBO, but also Samsung, TiVo, Apple, any type of platform that wants to be able to pull in and engage audience and pull people's attention. They realize the value that Hollywood, Hollywood has been trying to pull people's attention since 1910. Yeah. They've been, and they're masters of not only creating content, but actually the most underrated aspect of what Hollywood is is marketing. They know how to pull our attention and make us want. To go see that movie, which we know probably is kind of crap, but if want to go out and see that movie or watch that TV show, and be able to make the teasers, make the trailers, and also promote the personalities, the celebrities, and want to go see. And, that.
0: and other companies that are, have adjacent businesses that have been trying to buy Hollywood views. I mean, I remember when Sony first bought, you know, Sony yeah. now Sony Columbia, Sony sure. Pictures. I mean, it took them years to get value out of that investment. But maybe even now they still don't. But yeah. it was that sense of how do you marry hardware with content.
1: But not only, yeah, not only a hardware with content, much like Apple is doing with iTunes, but also the content is a great attention grabber and a great uh, gateway into a flywheel of another business, which is exactly what Amazon is doing. Amazon Video is a great complement to Amazon Prime. Amazon Video will pull you in and make you want to keep returning, yeah. and, and keep having a subscription to Amazon Prime. And if you have, if you're signed up for Amazon Prime you're far more likely, or you actually buy 2.5 times more things on Amazon. They don't really make money on Amazon Prime. They do make money on the stuff that you, I mean, sorry, they don't make money on Amazon Video. They do make money on Amazon Prime and the stuff that you buy through it. And so the Amazon Video is a great game. Because it reduces friction on on the whole Exactly, exactly. You know what, I get free two-day shipping, so why am I going out to the grocery store, or why am I going to the hardware store? I'm just going to Amazon Prime and order everything.
0: When you look at these pure play video content uh, providers like um, HBO and uh, Netflix, I mean, given the vast amounts of money they're spending now on content acquisition, just how profitable are these businesses really? I mean, when you look under the hood, um, how sustainable
1: is their model? Well, HBO and Netflix have, diff- have different models. Yeah. HBO is, HBO Go, excuse me. Huh. HBO Go is an adjacent business to HBO's current model right now, which is charging, uh, charging the cable companies a premium. And they, HBO has a lot of power within that ecosystem. If a cable company doesn't offer HBO, then nobody's gonna sign up for them, so they can charge a lot of money. And HBO Go is a new revenue stream for them. Whereas Netflix, the online business is total. And so therefore, HBO has many more revenue streams to supplement their uh, content costs. Whereas Netflix, their content costs are ballooning. Up to, I think it's gonna be five billion dollars. Just an enormous amount. For their, their current content costs, and they need to do that to be able to promote and keep people hooked on their subscription. So they're spending
0: uh, five or six billion on content. How much mm-hmm. are they take in on subscriptions?
1: They're keeping ahead of the of the, of the subscriptions. Um, I don't have the actual numbers right now, but right now they are currently in they're currently in the black. But the content costs are growing, and it's a concern. Right. Um, and that is. How I talk to investors about that is something that they need to is that something that would that they need to project on the and come up with a ratio of the attraction and the uh, the engagement or the minimization or the churn rate. Right. Their content acquisition cost directly affects their churn rate and what amount of what amount of uh, uh, content costs they have to they have to have to be able to keep that churn rate under 4.5% is something they need, they need to keep a hold of. Once that content cost, if that content cost goes far above that, that puts them in the red or starts to eclipse a certain number, that's a time to when that stock price could start going down. Which is why I guess
0: that they're, they're doing two things at the moment, the aggressive global expansion to right. find uh, you know new green fields, but they're also starting to Kind of trim back their content now, aren't they? Because I mean, what I've noticed is that they're not as deep in content as they used to be. I mean, there's
1: some bigger headline shows, but well, that, that circles back to around to what we were talking about before with CDNs and optimizing the edge, right? <clears throat> optimizing the content that we see. Right. And as we see, as we said, their one of Netflix's main tenants is being able to put out content that you want to watch within within five seconds of opening Netflix app that doesn't necessitate having the broadest library, that necessitates having the most optimized library for people for, for things that people want to watch within three seconds. There's
0: still an, an aggregate level to that. I mean, do you think right. we'll ever get truly variable rights agreements where Netflix will license a show not for everyone, not for the United
1: States, but just for Chris or for Mike? Um, no, I don't think so, just because of the business model of the content providers themselves. Right. The, because of the history of being able to have broad content rights um, and the money that they make from it. Reg- um, the content providers in the near future are still going to be calling the shots because they are producing the very things that are pulling people into your service. Yeah. the Your attention. Again, they're masters of creating content that pulls Pulls in and keeps your attention for a long time, and the marketing and the and the market ecosystem that grabs our attention.
0: But if you're a if you're a content producer today, given that you're now producing content not just for broadcast networks or cable networks, but streaming networks for brands, your market's wide open. Yeah. How how do you? I mean, what is the mental shift you have to go through? I mean, like how how are they having to adjust their businesses? um, You know, I guess to, to succeed in this environment.
1: Well, one is that they're given more, because of the wider array of platforms, they're given more creative freedom to be able to come up with um, better, well, arguably better stories or more creative stories, or leave, letting the the creatives have freer reign. Before, when you only had three or four you know, channels, the, the channels dictated, you know what, I want the same laugh track, I want right. the same wrong. You couldn't have long story arcs. You couldn't of, have long story arcs, you couldn't have more creative things, you couldn't have um, things that are more mystical or things that actually have, or focus on a more niche audience. There right. were very few yeah. horror series that were out there before because that was, yeah. that was something that was... And this was, is
0: what you said actually, for a lot of these niche channels, it's not about having a mass audience, but about having a fervent
1: audience. About having an audience that's very fervent about it. It's having ve- people that are dedicated and having their attention pulled in that way so for the cable channels that want to charge more to the uh, to the to the to the cable companies like AMC The Walking Dead or the or Mad Men Mad Men's audience is never very big but very fervent AMC could charge a cable company a lot or the um, house of cards or the um, transparent, those shows on Amazon, those are the reasons people actually subscribe. Not because of the broad array of content, but because of, tho- because of those pieces of content, because those content really resonate with those people. So it's not the broad array, it's the fervent, it's the dedication to those pieces of content. And again, that gives creators much more free reign to be able to do things, and on a much shorter, uh, on a much shorter time frame. Instead of having to, to develop 23 episodes, which is, which is eight months of a year, they can focus on eight to 13. And by doing eight to th- only eight to 13 episodes, they're able to get higher caliber talent. They're able to get movie directors. They're able to get uh, Kevin Spacey. They're able to get Jessica Lange. They're able to get Susan Sarandon to come in and do television, to be able to get, do television, uh, television episodes eight to 13. Because they wouldn't be stuck for nine months on a television show. Well, Chris, I, I feel like I'm not only
0: caffeinated, I know a lot more about media <laughs> than I ever did before. So, this was great to see you. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate that. Thanks for
1: listening to my rambling.
0: You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash walshcom between worlds.